Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Today, we're celebrating the baddest mothers in our Mumsnet Mother's Day special, looking at this week's news and what it means for football clubs' prospects of survival and taking a deep dive into Boggy Pitch's baggy shirts and the biggest title bottle ever in another of Michael Cox's favourite seasons. And I tell you now, you will absolutely love it. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Kodak Black there, speaking for us all probably, but nice to be back with you, listener, here at least. It's uh, Monday morning, I think, uh, week two anyway, in our footballless world. In a parallel universe right now, Liverpool have just beaten Palace at Anfield to clinch the league title. Always knew Roy Hodgson was going to be key for that. They've had the FA Cup quarterfinals, Newcastle shocking Manchester City with that Joe Ellington hat-trick. And we're about to review Burnley-Watford on the pod. But not in our dimension, where we're joined from South London... Uh, by Michael Cox. Hi, James. Hi, Michael. Uh, from Peckham, by Matt Davis-Adams. Hello, James. And from down a well, Daniel Story. Hello. Hello, Daniel. How are you? Very well, thank you, all things considered. Excellent. Michael, when we spoke last week, you were saying that not having any football was essentially just like an international break. How are you feeling about that seven days later? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I mean, I specified just one weekend without football is like an international break. But uh, right, well, it, it's, yeah, it's a, a little bit more difficult. Yeah, a little bit more difficult after two weekends, I suppose. Who's given in and watched the A League? No, not I, me. I did watch it on on Friday morning. I have to say, yes. Uh, Football I think methadone. That, well, yes and no, in that it, it didn't really work. I think a, a lot of the nation watched the Maradona documentary uh, for their Saturday night football fix. Uh, Andy Shake uh, writing in saying, after watching Maradona last night, do you think had England beat West Germany in the semis, they would have beaten Argentina in the Italian 90 final? Michael, you were tuned in, weren't you? Yeah, it's a great film. I saw it at the cinema and uh, yeah, really enjoyed it again last night. I think it's just brilliantly shot. And I think the opening sequence in particular, where there's that car journey through Naples kind of clipped up with uh, what's happened in Maradona's career up to that point is just a fantastic first uh, opening five minutes. In terms of 1990, I mean, who knows? I don't think it was uh, a very good final. Well, it was a, a wretched final, really. So, you know, I think it probably would have been 50-50, but um, it wasn't a particularly sparkling end to that tournament, I think it's fair to say. I think that's very fair indeed. Daniel, you've seen this as well. Matt, you haven't. Why should Matt make time as soon as possible uh, to view this? Well, it's a piece of sporting and football history, but uh, the thing that I find really interesting, which probably already knew but it really hammers it home is just how much uh, it felt like Maradona needed Naples and Naples needed Maradona you know the city was crying out for that hero and I think the fact it was an outsider who kind of bought into everything that Naples was I mean they were the perfect fit together like it hadn't worked at Barcelona because it was a bit of a big club for him and he needed to kind of pull the club up by the bootstraps and carry them to glory and yeah I mean it's a it is a remarkable story it really is indeed Well, this week, we did get some news regarding the current season. First of all, UEFA announced that Euro 2020, which should now be taking place from June to July 2021, 
will still be known as Euro 2020. They then uh, issued another statement saying they hadn't made their minds up yet, which is perplexing. Why would you not call it Euro 2021? Branding? I think, (laughs) yeah, I think there's also a thing about the women's Euros, isn't there? Um, Which was meant to be in 2021. I I wonder if they're a little bit worried about stepping on toes. Okay. I'm sure. I'm sure a lot of it is to do with the fact that you know somebody mentioned uh, sticker albums, for example, which is obviously a very small thing, but they will have spent millions of pounds on branding for the event already. You know, if they've got to keep advertisers happy by pushing it back a year, if you say, well, you've got to rebrand all the content at your own expense, how well would that go down? And also, it's, it would just be another nice little quirk of this horrible period of our lives as well, won't it? Oh, Euro 2020. It was actually in Euro 20. 21. Quite an easy quiz question. So there's that to look forward to. Also, a uh, word from Neon uh, suggesting financial fair play may be suspended or at least reinterpreted over this period as clubs struggle to survive. On Thursday, the Premier League had their big meeting with warnings emerging that clubs may have to pay back $732 million in broadcast revenue if they don't get the season restarted again. But in the meantime, another series of uh, rescue measures and financial aid for beleaguered clubs. So to get an idea on how uh, that help and indeed the current situation may be impacting on clubs, uh, let's hear now from a lecturer in football finance at the University of Liverpool and voice of the Price of Football podcast, Kieran Maguire. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Kieran, thanks so much for joining us. I was really interested to see the new rescue packages and finances that are being made available to professional sides in England, but equally interesting to see your figures showing how long that money will last for most uh, championship sides. Uh, Stoke, for example, you have them burning through that in nine days. That's right. I mean, that that's assuming that Stoke take both the, the advance, which of course they're entitled to do so, and take the maximum loan. Uh, I, I think what we also have to be aware of is that, remember, nearly all of the clubs in the championship are already reliant upon their owners to cover the losses being made. But this was sort of a, an experiment for, from my own point of view to see what was happening. And Stoke would have last nine days. I think the average is around about 16 days based on the present level of wages. So that's ignoring the fact that clubs have other costs that they have to deal with on a day-to-day basis as well. Uh, it does show the precarious nature of championship club finances over the course of the the last five or six years, income has increased significantly, but it can't keep up with the increase in wages. So at the risk of sounding brutal, what kind of survival chances do you give the majority of football clubs? Well, if they have owners who have been able to subsidise the clubs in the past and can continue to do so, then those clubs should be fine. My main concern would be in respect of clubs which are um, fan-owned, community-based clubs or, or clubs who whose owners have more modest uh, Uh, income and more modest wealth themselves and also remember many club owners do have uh, other businesses which which are successful and on the basis of that they're able to effectively transfer some money across and invest in the football clubs Um, now if uh, if we go into some form of lockdown and, and remember many sectors especially in the service sector of the economy are being hit very hard then the owners other businesses will be struggling and that's going to make it more difficult for them to offer support to the football clubs themselves. You talk about clubs that might be threatened. The Premier League are by no means immune from this, especially given their announcement on Thursday that uh, clubs may have to pay back over £700 million in broadcast revenue. Yes, um, 
Premier League clubs are already losing money. I mean, two thirds of clubs uh, lost money in 2019, the ones that have reported. And we've seen some of the losses being in excess of £100 million. So I think the, the viewpoint that the, the Premier League is awash with money isn't really accurate. I mean, it, it does have the benefit of an awful lot of money coming in, but just as quickly that money tends to go out. Um, in terms of the potential repayment to the broadcasters, that would be on the basis of uh, fixtures not being fulfilled this season, um, and therefore there would have been a breach of contract as far as uh, Sky and BT are concerned. Uh, I think what we will see is that that's a doomsday scenario. Certainly, that is the worst case that we can look forward to. Um, the the clubs, I think, will be desperate to get the fixtures fulfilled, with, with the exception of Karen Brady, by the sounds of it, um, and, and to have some form of finish to the season. And I suspect they'll try to come up with some form of arrangement with Sky and BT. Perhaps, if, if we are still uh, social distancing, the all matches uh, remaining for the Premier League will be broadcast in some sort of emergency deal. So your best guess would be that we will see at some point, possibly after the end of April, the rest of the season in a compressed fashion uh, with the appropriate test done for players played out behind closed doors. I I think that is the the most likely outcome on the basis of what appears to be the latest medical advice and clearly this is changing day by day the peak appears to be sort of 12 to 14 weeks time assuming that people take appropriate actions so I think it would be very foolish for uh, clubs to allow uh, fans back into uh, attend matches under those circumstances therefore the best alternative given that the fans want to watch football we will all be going stir crazy fairly soon the broadcasters are desperate for um, something to fill their schedules and the clubs want some form of clarity as to what is the 2019-20 season would be to allow matches to take place behind closed doors subject of course to a the, the players need to get back to being match fit and, and they've already lost that so you know, we are talking you know, two to three weeks once that decision is made in order to get the players back to an appropriate level of fitness um, and then to allow the, the rather surreal experience of watching the matches take place in empty stadia. Uh, I I saw the Manchester United match in Austria the other week and and it did feel unreal. You suddenly realise just how important a crowd is to a football match. It it is part of the environment, but this will be uh, the next best alternative. Kieran Maguire there. Alexander writes in and says, if the season does restart, do we expect there to be some friendlies before the action gets back underway? No, I wouldn't have thought so. You have to kind of go straight in because otherwise you're just delaying it further. But it does provide, a, it's going to provide a talking point, you know, about fitness of players, which was something which obviously came up massively over the Christmas period. You will be throwing them in pretty much on the back of no real training or certainly, you know, shape, tactical work, that kind of thing. So the quality of the games might be pretty poor to start with, but that's just something we'll have to put up with. I'm sure we'll be delighted to see anything at that point. Matt, your local club, Dulwich Hamlet, have done some pretty bleak sums about their future. Yeah, so Ben Clasper is the, is the chairman of Dulwich Hamlet and he's he's worked out the projected losses of all the 68 clubs in, in the top two tiers of England's non-league system, which obviously includes Dulwich Hamlet, who are in the Conference South. And, and he's worked out that they'll need a quarter of a million pounds each to survive through 
coronavirus. So he's lobbying the FA to, to help take the um, the case to the government, to the Department for Media, Culture and Sport. But interestingly, all the all the chairman of teams in the league who've commented on it have said, that sounds absolutely bang on. £250,000 is what we need. So, you know, it's it sounds easy to do it, doesn't it? Well, we all need a quarter of a million pounds each, but we'll see whether it actually works out. Good luck with that, freelancer. Uh, mm. Kingstonian, <laughs> how are they set, Michael? Well, it's, it's a difficult situation to read at that level because I'd say there's almost two different types of clubs at that level. Some are clubs who depend very much upon you know, the community and gate receipts and people coming through the turnstiles. And there's other clubs who are basically just bankrolled by a rich owner. So, you know, as Kieran referenced, it will be a, a very different situation for those those few clubs. There's also a, a slightly worrying situation in terms of um, the contracts players are on. I mean, some players have a contract till the end of the season. Some players are basically just week to week. Um, I don't think it's unreasonable to say as well that at that level there's there's quite uh, or lower levels than that maybe there's quite a cash in hand culture which um you know might cause issues in terms of their uh, income being backed up by the government um so yeah it's it's quite a perilous situation at that level for a lot of clubs fingers crossed that uh, we can get something uh, sorted as soon as is safely possible uh, up next uh, let's dip into this week's mailbag i'm jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Being on the front cover of Rolling Stone magazine? Special. Winning the Daily Jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbegumbleware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. That's right, listener. It's a Mother's Day theme today with the questions uh, because it's, you know, Mother's Day on Sunday as we record. Sandwich Clive is on board. He says, on this Mother's Day, which players with an old lady's name would make your starting 11? Sandwich Clive offers, as examples, Darren Eady, good one, David May and Carol Paborski. It's a bit harsh on the first name Carol there, but uh, <laughs> Dave Stacey also chips in. Lillian Taram. Brilliant. Any any ideas, guys? The the classification of old is, is a difficult one because I had Alison and Michelle Vaughan, but surely they're not old. I mean, Marion Pahars, will you give me that? Yeah. Former Southampton striker. Okay. Dominic Burke, on a mother-related note, says, uh, well, who's the most famous mum in football? You could have Amy Rodriguez, of course, who won Olympic gold and the FIFA Women's World Cup and is already a mother to two boys as well. So, you know, she would certainly qualify. But in terms of mothers of footballers, uh, who would stand out for you in, in maternal terms? Uh, well, Jermaine Defoe's mother was quite prominent in his uh, contractual negotiations, I think was was working as his agent essentially for a long time. I thought that was quite interesting because people really seemed to sneer at the idea that his mother had a big impact upon his career and his transfer negotiations, where there's, there's lots of players whose dads have acted as their agents over the years, Lionel Messi, for example. So I thought that was an interesting uh, imbalance in terms of how their their relationship was framed. Yeah, I mean, exactly the same thing. Uh, maybe not the treatment of her, but with with Adrian Rabio's uh, mother, who he famously sacked. 
because she failed to get him a move to Barcelona, thus making their dynamic fairly awkward around special occasions, I imagine. Nothing to the dynamic at the Adebayor Christmas dinner, though, after the extraordinary events there. Do you remember when it was reported that he'd accused her and various members of his family of doing juju against him to stop him scoring goals? Uh, He later said that since he's not a pastor, it's not up to him to identify witches, but did indicate that the family had basically been riding on his shoulders for entirely too long. Uh, Paul Koncheski's mum is is the one I always think of, having having branded Liverpool fans scouse scum on Facebook. And I just <laughs> I, I just put Paul Koncheski into Google, and the first thing that comes up is Paul Koncheski mum. The second thing is Paul Koncheski FA Cup final goal. That was quite a good goal in the FA Cup final, but it's not as prominent as his mum. Right. She went on a Facebook rant after Liverpool fans criticised her son's performance. She told Liverpool's fans, who she dubbed Scouse Gum, to stop living off the past and described Roy Hodgson's side as The Facebook account was taken down when fans started sending in angry messages. In an earlier post, Mrs Koncheski, who lives in Dagenham, said the family would not be moving to Liverpool with their son as we don't like the way they talk. By the way, if we're speaking about mothers, I mean... There are some, there are some really, really devoted you know mothers and a lovely relationship. Paul Pogba, who will often bring uh, Mrs. Pogba along to you know the, his mother to kind of red carpet events and prizes and that kind of thing. Raheem Sterling obviously bought his mother controversially for some newspapers uh, that uh, very lavishly appointed house. Cristiano Ronaldo, another one who's uh, who's good to his mum. Um, but John Terry's mother has certainly hit the headlines. Susan Terry, also his mother-in-law. Do you remember when the two of them got done together for um, making off with a haul of, uh, I think, 1,500 or so worth of, of uh, clothes and food from Marks and Spencer and Tesco, including mm. apparently a horrid green tracksuit, according to the, the officer involved. There was a case of uh, Ainsley Maitland-Niles' mum, I don't know if you remember, a few years ago, who got herself banned from Arsenal's training ground for... Effectively, I think twice attacking club employees over, uh, basically over Ainsley not making it quickly enough into the first team as she thought. Wow. Well, well, let's move on then. Uh, another quick tweet. This one is from uh, Jamie at Jamie Parkins, who asks, "What's the panel's greatest goal that they've seen in person?" Michael. I think my top two might have been from the same weekend, from autumn twenty thirteen. I think it was. On the Saturday, I was at Arsenal and saw that goal uh, that Jack Wilshere rounded off with a little bit of interplay with Olivier Giroud. And then two days later, I was at Selhurst Park to see what I think probably takes the title, which was Kasami's incredible dipping chest and volley into the far corner. Um, I was also at a Basque derby in 2011, Real Sociedad against Bilbao, of course, and Inigo Martinez scored from about 60 yards. Um, And another contender was when we were over in... uh, in Northern Ireland for our live podcast last year where uh, a Cliftonville player whose name briefly escapes me, I'm afraid, chested the ball down, uh, dinked it over an opponent and then lobbed the goalkeeper from the halfway line, which, you know, in the surroundings was, was almost quite startling to watch, but a, a truly fantastic goal. Nice play by McDermott. Has a goal from distance, followed the goalkeeper off his line. What a goal from McDermott. Well, Turker was... Trying to backpedal, but Colin McDermott has just scored a contender for goal of the season. 
A couple that spring to mind for me. One from last season, Eden Hazard against West Ham at Stamford Bridge. That was pretty special to watch, especially because you knew that it was kind of probably the last goal like that you'd, I'd ever see him score in the flesh. So that was good. But the one that I was thinking of is actually from the season we're going to talk about later. Ian Wone free kick for Forrest against Spurs in the FA Cup. Uh, it was kind of... Went, went straight as an arrow uh, from the right-hand side of the penalty area right into the top left-hand corner. And, it, and you think, oh, free kick, that doesn't sound great. But I was sort of directly opposite, looking right at it with my stepdad, who actually supports Derby. And he said, the only place that he can score here is if he puts it in the top corner. And he did. And I've just got a nice memory of that. But it was a great goal too. It's Ian Wong. Oh, say, that's a blinder. Nottingham Forest back on terms with a memorable goal from Ian Wone, his second of the night. Nottingham Forest, majesty aside, Ivan Rakitic scored an amazing goal against Spurs. I think it was at Wembley a couple of years ago. In that, I think it was a 4-2 win, like a volley off the post. It was a beautiful. And I was also lucky enough to be at Old Trafford when I was 18 for Rooney's hat-trick against Fenerbahce. Uh, and that free kick again. Like I mean, the free kick was a decent free kick, but just... To wrap up a hat-trick was, was obviously amazing. It's Rooney. It's inevitable. <laughs> Some things are just meant to be. Wayne Rooney has saved his first senior hat-trick for his Manchester United debut in the Champions League. All mine seemed to come from the, the 90s when I was in, in kind of cultural exile in in, in Italy. And in the course of our Golazzo series, it's extraordinary how many of the iconic goals I remember as as being there in much the same way that we were all at the Rolling Stones first gig and, and that kind of thing. But certainly, um, Rakoba's debut brace on the day that was supposed to be all about Ronaldo, the phenomenon against Brescia, uh, we were all over. And, and particularly, we were there at San Siro the day that George Weir did this. Basterebbe questo gol per giustificare il costo dei biglietti dei 50.000 paganti a San Siro. Incredibile UEA che all'83esimo scatena una standing ovation, fa 100 metri scartando gli avversari in 14 secondi e il gol che Georges racconta così. And that was really nice because it went on for so long that you had time to savor <laughs> the feeling of history coalescing around you. Wow, more retro stuff up next as we dig up another slab of long gone footballing times. Uh, with a trip back to a season that would produce the Premier League's most famous match of all two of its most famous soundbites and a title collapse that became the stuff of legends, all shuffling our way now in zombie football. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Extra large laundry baskets? Special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com, 18plusbegumbleware.org. Zombie Football. Right, listeners, it was the mid-90s, a time of blur and oasis and Gina G 
A time of lads, of gear and smoking in pubs. A time when Chris Evans owned Friday night and Noel Edmonds sat astride Saturday. And a time when the Premier League witnessed its most famous meltdown ever. 95-96 is the season in question. Michael Cox, author of The Mixer, a history of the Premier League and the tactics that have marked its evolution. This is, I think I'm right in saying, one of your favourite seasons. But good luck, if I may, finding any tactics here. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that was the interesting thing. I mean, Newcastle obviously came very, very close to winning it. And in the end, I think when you look at why they didn't win it, you have to say it's because Keegan didn't really put any emphasis upon defensive training. He didn't look at the opposition at all. Um, he kind of just read out the, the team sheet in the dressing room rather than actually giving them instructions for the game. But the interesting thing is probably not that they didn't win it with that approach. It's that they came quite close to winning it with that approach, if that makes sense. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was a, a remarkable season. I must say, having heard for maybe 15, 20 years um, about, you know, the game that kind of defined the season, their 4-3 uh, defeat to uh, Liverpool Anfield, I hadn't actually watched the game in full until relatively recently. And it is a genuinely incredible game. I don't generally like watching old games when you know the scoreline because I think a lot of the excitement about football is not knowing what's going to happen next. But I mean, that is a... A really, really incredible game. And I still think probably the most memorable title running along with the 2014 one that we chatted about last weekend. For that Liverpool 4-3 game, you've also got probably the second most iconic line of commentary ever for the for the winning goal. Barnes, Rush, Barnes. Still John Barnes, Collymore closing in. One of the, the myths of, of Newcastle, which Michael talks about in his book, is this idea of the Kevin Keegan entertainers. It should be said that they only conceded 37 league goals that season. It wasn't it wasn't a disaster in defence. Their biggest problem was was anyone else other than Les Ferdinand scoring goals, basically. He, he scored 25 and nobody else scored any more than eight. One of the questions that always gets asked is, is whether signing Faustino Aspria was that caused the meltdown, but... Newcastle didn't really have a lot of choice. Beardsley had only scored four or five times. No one else had scored more than three or four. So he kind of had to gamble on that to help Ferdinand out. All right, well, we'll have a little discussion about what really happened to the Magpies in that fateful season. But let's just get into some of the other rich, old-timey detail from the 95-96 season. It was the first 20-team Premier League campaign. The numbers have, had come down from 22 the previous season. The reigning champions were Blackburn Rovers, who produced the Premier League's all-time worst title defence, at least until David Moyes pitched up at Old Trafford. To me, Blackburn's season in, in totality is far, far more disappointing than Newcastle's meltdown. As defending champions, keeping the same team, still had Alan Shearer, and they took like two points in the first six games, I think, and were basically out of the title race at that point. They also had that incredible uh, bust-up between Graham Lasso and David Batty uh, before his move across to, to Newcastle. Mm. Uh, where was that? At Spartak Moscow, huh? Yes, yeah. They had a, a disagreement and David Batty, it's fair to say, was a, a combustible character, an unpredictable character, shall we say, at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they finished bottom of the Champions League group with Rosenberg, Galicia, Warsaw and Spartak Moscow. So it's fair to say it didn't go well. Looking at Blackburn, they finished seventh. They were 21 points behind Man United. But I thought, actually, it's probably not that bad a season. If you think that Leicester, who, you know, a club of similar size and, and stature, you know, if you compare them in the two eras, they were 40 points off Chelsea in 2017. 
the year after that they won it. And, and Blackburn, of course, started the season with a new manager because Kenny Dalglish moved upstairs and, and Ray Harford took over. So actually, although the Champions League campaign was an unmitigated disaster, Premier League-wise, they probably just reverted to what was about the mean for them. Really? They, yeah, were, I, they were rich at the time, weren't they? They did have Jack Walker's considerable checkbook. And I just think Manchester United weren't a brilliant team that season. They were a team in transition that won the league and did very well. But I think it was open for Blackburn to stick around a little bit longer than they did. Well, there were all sorts of other contenders in this year. Liverpool, for example, who were in and around the title race uh, at times, dubbed the Spice Boys, wearing white suits to the FA Cup final. That Liverpool there. Uh, Forest were in the top flight and in Europe. Uh, make it all the way to the UEFA Cup quarterfinals. Matt, you went along to their final game in this campaign. Uh, European I did, yeah. Campaign. What, how did that go for you? Uh, not great, uh, but Forest got further than any other English team in, in European competition that season. They beat Malmo, Auxerre and Lyon before they came up against Bayern Munich in the quarterfinals and lost 2-1 in Munich in the first leg. So you're thinking, OK, great, we'll just, just win the return leg 1-0. We'll go through and away goals. That'll be fine. Uh, Bayern won 5-1 in the return. It was a bit unfair because they had uh, Jürgen Klinsmann and Jean-Pierre Papin up front uh, and Forrest didn't. Uh, they also had people like Lothar Mateus, Oliver Kahn. So, yeah, it was a bit of a mismatch, really. And you just sold off Stan Collymore to Liverpool as well. Yeah, and spent the money wisely by uh, replacing him with the Serie A top scorer, Andrea Silenzi, who managed no goals and no assists in his 12 Premier League appearances. Legend, yeah. He was top scorer, I think, midway through. He'd just been on an incredibly fecund kind of November, and that's when you bought him, and then he regressed to the, <laughs> the mean, and you know the, the rest is, is history. Uh, this may be a struggle for younger listeners, but down the bottom end of the table, that season ended with Man City relegated. Do you remember the circumstances, Daniel? Yes, I, I absolutely do. It, it, that is absolutely classic 90s when you've got something like a lack of technology and you had people on their radios in the stand. But yeah, the story goes that, that Alan Ball managing Manchester City, Manchester City drawing with a minute or so to go, believed that, that Southampton were losing and therefore that Manchester City only needed a draw to stay up. So he basically tried to play out for a draw and Manchester City didn't only need a draw. They needed to win and were relegated, which is... Incredible piece of administration. Right. Niall Quinn, apparently, because he'd been subbed off, so he sees the score as he's walking down the tunnel and he has this desperate race to try and get back out and warn them before the time runs out. Magnificent stuff. I miss days uh, like that. Also going down with Man City, Bolton and QPR, who uh, struggled having lost Les Ferdinand to Newcastle. A QPR wouldn't be back in the Premier League for 15 years. Les Ferdinand would, though. Uh, he joined Kevin Keegan's exciting jazz tactics experiment, Newcastle. Michael, let's hear now about the, the Magpies and how they lined up under a, a manager who had no previous experience and an assistant manager who had no previous experience. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, Keegan and McDermott. Um, I mean... They didn't score that many goals. I mean, that's the strange thing about the entertainers. They scored fewer goals than every Premier League champion, um, which ties in with what Daniel said about, uh, you know, there's a slight myth in terms of why they didn't win the league. But certainly in the first half of the season, I mean, they were a fantastic force going forward. They had uh, Keith Gillespie down the right, who was kind of an old school winger, got to the byline and crossed. They had Peter Beardsley buzzing around just behind Ferdinand. And they had David Ginler, who arrived from PSG and, I don't think there's many players who have adapted so quickly to the Premier League. I mean, the first few months, I think he won player of the month in his first month in the competition. And he was just, I mean, a very unusual winger. Um, he wasn't just a kind of 
skillful, tricky flair merchant. He was a big guy. He was very good with his back to goal, actually. Two-footed, could spin either way, could score long-range curlers into the far corner. And I think he kind of epitomised the spirit of Newcastle. There was a real directness and a real kind of passion for scoring goals uh, in the first half of the season. And, of course, in the second half, things slow. And as uh, as mentioned, Espria comes in. And that's a funny situation because... A lot of people say that Espria was the reason that Newcastle really declined in the first, sorry, in the second half of the campaign. But I think Espria individually actually was often Newcastle's best player. The problem was he was so unpredictable and Keegan didn't really have any idea or communicate any idea in terms of how Newcastle were meant to play with him. That kind of what they'd created in the first half of the season kind of fell down and they were now depending on, you know, this this complete foreigner, uh, you know, foreign in terms of to the team as well as to the country, who didn't speak any English. They couldn't really communicate with him. And it was all just about his own individual magic rather than, you know, the, the relatively structured attacking they'd done in the first half of the season. It also seemed to put Les Ferdinand's nose out of joint as well. He he said that the manager said we weren't scoring enough goals other than me, so we brought him in. But he felt that it had made the team um, lopsided, which seems a little bit harsh. But just on um, Ginola, there's a, a great quote that I heard uh, in, in researching for this, John Beresford, one of his teammates, said that one of the first things he told the squad was, I'm a butterfly, the rest of the team, you're worker ants. <laughs> Manifest. <laughs> that, um, one of those worker ants is my, who I believe is the most underrated Premier League player of all time, which is Rob Lee, who was, he only played 21 times for England, but such dynamism in midfield and kind of underrated skill. I think maybe even because of his name, people just sort of assume he was a bit of a clogger, but he was a really, really skillful midfielder. I really like Rob Lee. And the other thing, a slight defence for Newcastle, that the last eight of the games of their season, every single game was decided by one goal or no goal. So although they fell short, it, it isn't that hard to see how if things had gone slightly differently in the odd game, they might have won the league. It wasn't like they were losing games 3-0 or 4-0 and getting, you know, completely losing their minds. Mm. Although that's very much the charge that's often laid at Kevin Keegan's door. So mm. he hadn't been a manager previously and by all accounts didn't do too much in terms of setting out the team. Terry McDermott, uh, Marco, you write in your book that he, he'd previously been working in a burger van at a race course. <laughs> yeah, I think that was a one-off day. I, th- I don't think he had anything on, so he helped out a mate or something. But certainly he had no coaching qualifications, no intention to go into coaching. And I mean, when you read reports of their training sessions, there just wasn't any real structure to them. I mean, they did, I believe they did a defensive session once all season, which was ahead of a 1-0 defeat to Southampton. And Keegan just said, well, that's not working. We're not going to do that again. So they didn't chat about defending for the rest of the campaign. Pretty much all the centre-backs he used were kind of midfielders converted into defenders. Steve Howie was was the obvious example. Philippe Albert was was very much a rampaging, roaming centre-back. Uh, the full-backs, uh, Barton and Beresford, were, were very solid, but towards the end of the campaign, they'd been replaced by uh, Robbie Elliott and Steve Watson, who were wingers in the youth system. Lee Clark had been converted from a number 10 into a defensive midfielder. So Keegan really just had this vision of almost creating you know, a goalkeeper and 10 attack-minded players. And while their, you know, their goal-scoring record wasn't spectacular, I mean, they were good to watch. You know, they there was a real excitement. And even though they fell short, there's still, I mean, personally speaking, I still have a tremendous fondness for that team and the way that they played football. And some of the individual results, obviously, it was the next season rather than the season we're talking about. But the, the 5-0 win over Manchester United the following season is maybe the most 
exciting and complete performance I've seen in the Premier League, considering, you know, what had happened in this season. So, yeah, they, they fell short. But I, I gather, you know, if any of those players go back to Newcastle, there's still a, a real kind of affection for them and a real, I think, pride at the way Newcastle conducted themselves throughout the season. And you can tell that from, you know, when Keegan talks about the season, he says, that the, you know, the thing that he's most proud of, the thing that stands out is that, neutrals like them you know they were often applauded onto and off the pitch and you know that wasn't something you had from Manchester United who obviously had this kind of us against the world approach which in the end proved uh, very much successful for them right I mean he talked about it being I think a moral victory at the end of that season and in a way he's right because when you think of the 95-96 season you do I, I think have Newcastle in your mind more than Man United Man United who narrowly missed out the previous year to Blackburn of course who were busy ushering through the, the class of 92, which prompted after a defeat to Aston Villa early on in the campaign, one of, as I mentioned, the, the two most famous soundbites in Premier League history when Alan Hansen said... Three players have departed. The trick is always buy when you're strong. So he needs to buy players. You can't win anything with kids. United, of course, winning the league and cup double uh, for the second time that season. It wasn't just the kids, though. They also had Eric Cantona back. Yeah, um, this is where I... Crowbar in the biggest plug in in history. Yeah. Um, in my book, 250 Days. Yeah. Firstly, about Alan Hansen, which I do talk about in there. History inevitably paints him as the fool for suggesting such things. But how rapid the rise was of that group of players was pretty much unprecedented, certainly in what we consider the modern game. At the time, it wasn't ridiculous. No, there was articles in The Guardian saying exactly the same. Fergus was under huge pressure from the support and the club. You know, he says, forget Mark Robbins in 1990. That was as close as I ever got to getting the sack. So it wasn't a completely ridiculous thing to say. Um, obviously, they went on and won the, the, the double and it, it makes Hansen look like a clown figure. But he was kind of reflecting the mood, really. It wasn't just... The class of 92, you know, it wasn't like they had 11 youth players out there. Peter Schmeichel, Dennis Irwin, Gary Pallister, Brian McClare all played in that opening game against uh, Villa. And then obviously Cantona came back in halfway through the season and 14 goals, 10 assists in the Premier League. So it wasn't like Beckham and co carried it on their back for the whole nine months. Yeah, and I think Ferguson really was, he was thinking long term because there was a game early on that they won 2-1 at Blackburn. Quite a tight game, David Beckham curled in a, a very late winner. And Ferguson afterwards said, well, you know, you look at this team and with the exception of, I think, one or two players, they're going to be together for the next five years. So he really was, you know, as, as was referred to, thinking of that as a transition season. I think the fact that they won the title, indeed they won the double because Cantona won them the cup final as well, almost felt like a bit of a bonus. I think had they had Newcastle won it that season, Ferguson would have said, well, OK, you know, we're building for you know, that next cycle, which obviously culminated in 99 in the Champions League, which really was his priority. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think that, uh, I, I dare say Ferguson used Hansen's words as motivation for his side, but I think at that time, deep down, probably kind of got where he was coming from. The other thing we have to, uh, that can't be overlooked is is just how pivotal a role Cantona played in the class of 92's development, purely because he he was, you know, he wasn't playing football, he was suspended he he twice came close to leaving Manchester United and the second time Ferguson said you know, he he swayed it by saying look you can take this group of players under your wing and you can develop them you can create a legacy for the next 15 years at Manchester United and ultimately that's what persuaded Cantona to stay and I think the the really nice one of the really nice things from that season is Cantona's comeback game against Liverpool 
was the first time that all of that class of 92 played with each other in the same game. So both Neville brothers start, Butts starts, Giggs starts, Beckham and Scholes come off the bench. And that's the first time that all six of those players played in the same game for Manchester United. Um, so yeah, that, that element of, of Cantona's kind of mentorship, I think is pr- pretty well overlooked. It's interesting. So that was United with their tremendously well-organised setup and the, the combination of veterans and young talent coming through. But better than them, for, the, for certainly until February, was this completely thrown together side of, of superstars from, from Newcastle. Christmas, they were 10 points clear. By mid-January 96, it was 12 points. And then, well, you have the signings of Asprilia and David Batty in February, and that's followed by a run of five defeats in eight games, which is hard not to draw connection between the two things. The penultimate of those five defeats coming on the 3rd of April at Anfield, uh, when they lose 4-3, voted this the greatest game in Premier League history. Michael, you're very on board with that. Daniel, Matt, do you still feel that it deserves that place at the top of the Pantheon? Yeah, because it is both incredibly entertaining when you watch it back and iconic in in terms of what it meant for both teams. It might sound very controversial, but I think Liverpool missed a trick by not being stronger that season. You know, they had David James, who was named in the PFA team of the year as the goalkeeper. They had Fowler and Collymore, which was probably the best strike force in... Uh, well, one of the best strike forces in the world at that point because Collymore was fantastic the season before at Forest. Fowler was top scorer in the league. They had McManaman, they had Barnes, who played 36 games that season. He was still there and they had a really good defence. I think they basically had a period, I think, where they lost four in five or something around November, December. But Liverpool were a really, really good team. Um, you know, their lack of title challenge should should be a bit of a shame, really. Yeah, and you think it, it, it did, looking back on it, all play into Ferguson's hands in, in terms of his rivals. We've spoken about Keegan's maybe tactical deficiencies, although he did take Newcastle from, from battling relegation in Division 2 to, to second in the Premier League. But, you know, Liverpool, Roy Evans, you know, if, they, if they'd had a, a manager with maybe a bit more pedigree, would that have helped them challenge more? And Blackburn, we've already mentioned with Ray Harford. So it wasn't like the teams who should have been challenging them were maybe at their strongest in, in terms of managers in the way that United obviously were. Do you remember watching that game? I was at a school, some event at school. So I'd have been, what, 12 years old. And I remember getting the last half an hour in the car on the radio on Five Live and cursing the school that I was not able to watch it. My main memory of it, actually, is that famous shot of Keegan head slumped over the advertising hoarding with his hand down on it as well and like zipping up his jacket unzipping it again then trying to get it zipped up again just trying to take his mind off you know what was going on um that's the main thing that i remember from it and also aspria's goal and his kind of fist pump celebration as he goes in toward the um the supporters but it was it was quite bittersweet to watch the greatest game in premier league history and see it decided by somebody who Forrest had sold in the summer. So I wasn't that into it and also wanted Newcastle <laughs> to win the title. Just on the game and, and you know, watching it back from a tactical perspective, the most interesting thing is the whole game revolves around David Ginola, who plays so high up the pitch for a left winger in a 4-4-2. I mean, he's basically a third forward. And I think two of Newcastle's goals come from the fact he's so high up the pitch and two of Liverpool's goals come from the fact that he has absolutely no interest whatsoever in tracking back with uh, Jason McAteer. So I think Ginola, for, for good and bad, really deserves the credit for that, that game being so memorable. Right, and as you say, with Keegan slumped over the advertising hoardings, United now three points clear at the top of the table, although the Magpies did still have a game in hand, which takes us on to the other 
a famous soundbite from this season, Kevin Keegan's I would love it if we beat them. And when you do things like that about a man like Stuart Pearce, I'm, I've kept really quiet, but I'll tell you something. He went down in my estimation when he said that. We have not resorted to that, but I'll tell you, you can tell him now, be watching it. We're still fighting for this title, and he's got to go to Middlesbrough and get something. And, and I'll tell you, honestly, I will love it if we beat them. Love it. It was a, a classic piece of, of Alex Ferguson mind games. He says as much in, in both his diary of the season, he says as much in, in pretty much every autobiography he's written. He realised that he had the wood over, over Keegan and he, he suspected that there was a, an element of Keegan's personality that would make him prone to this kind of reaction. And it's a piece of you know, puppet on a string. It, it very much is. Ferguson was just toying with Keegan and poking him and jabbing him and it had gone on a few weeks before and eventually he, he doesn't only get the reaction from Keegan but he gets it live on TV which is everything Ferguson wants and Ferguson says looking back that that was the title one. He knew it as soon as Keegan had, had been so emotional so blatantly that he knew the title was done. Sir Alex had suggested that Nottingham Forest wouldn't try as hard when they played Newcastle. That's what prompted mm. this from Keegan. Uh, it was because uh, Newcastle were the opposition for Stuart Pearce's testimonial, which took place uh, a couple of weeks after the, the end of the season. And Forrest still had to play Newcastle at the city ground before the season ended and actually equalised to draw 1-1. Um, the testimonial, by the way, was great. It, it finished 6-5. Kevin Keegan scored. They brought the full first-team squad uh, for it like a week after they'd lost the league title. It was um, it was amazing. But what I really liked about about this was the, when Fergie started it, it was after they'd just beaten Leeds 1-0 at Old Trafford. And Leeds played with an outfield player in goal for most of that game. Uh, Beanie, their keeper, got sent off. And it was in his post-match that he was saying teams try much harder against Man United. And he said, I was really disappointed in Leeds. You know, as if one of their biggest rivals should have just had the good grace to come and lose the game, not try and stop them from winning it. And then obviously he opined that Leeds would try much harder against, um, or Leeds wouldn't try as hard, I should say, against Newcastle at Ellen Road a couple of weeks after that. I mean, the good thing about that is it's not even my favourite post-match managerial rant on Sky Sports of the season. Because there was also the Ron Atkinson Ah. uh, (laughs) meltdown a couple of months beforehand, which I I must say, I, I just find even more funny for a variety of reasons, um, mainly because he kind of outwits Richard Keyes in their, uh, in their head-to-head, which is uh, always good to see. But you have to show, surely, don't you, a little bit more than there was evident tonight? You may say that. We don't think so, you know, Richard. I'm sorry. You can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. I'm manager of a football team. I'm an experienced manager. Yeah, if the boys hadn't done enough, I'll whip them. But I ain't whipping them for that tonight. Who won the Man of the Match award? Dave Besant won the Oh, sorry, so he must have played not bad then. Thank you very much, lads. See you later. OK, Ron. Well, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. And then it ends with a victorious Ron Atkinson hurling his headphones away in, in disgust, but then having to kind of come back with a rueful apology and, and, and retrieve them because he's managed to hit the sound man on, on the head with them. But marvellous stuff. On the field anyway, while, while Newcastle were, were falling to bits, United winning 13 of their last 15 games, the only match that they lost in that period... And what a memorable season this is, was the infamous 3-1 defeat at the Dell against Southampton, the Invisible Shirts game. See, the players deny this. Uh, it, they say that they just hated that kit and they thought it was unlucky. And apparently when they got in the dressing room at halftime, Ferguson said, just take that kit off immediately. We, we've never won a, a game in it. None of you like the look of it. We're putting this one on instead. 
in the second half, which there, there must be some rule that you're not supposed to do that without good reason. So, I, so presumably they cooked up this reason of we can't see each other, so we need to wear a different kit. Yeah, Sir Alex claiming afterwards that the grey shirts they were wearing, grey football shirts very much are in vogue in this period of the 90s, but that their jerseys were blending in with the crowd. So they switched to their white and blue kit and did promptly go out and pull a goal back. It was 3-0 at half-time and ended up being 3-1. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that we remember the Keegan meltdown as Newcastle bottling. It had the season gone the other way. You wonder whether Ferguson demanding his, you know, blaming his defeat on the colour of the shirts would be remembered as a slightly more uh, cynical, negative way. Just an, another world. I mean, so much of that season, with the possible exception of Man United, who seemed to be uh, to have modernised ahead of much of the rest of the league, so much of that season seems to belong to an entirely different sport. You say another world, James. I, I was looking through the teams that it was it was a wretched season for, for English teams in Europe, Nottingham Forest aside. Um, you look at the teams that the, the, the Premier League sides went out to. Liverpool went out to Bromby. Blackburn went out to Rosenberg, Legia Warsaw and Spartak Moscow, as we said. Manchester United lost to Rota Volgograd. Leeds lost 8-3 on aggregate to PSV. And the really nice little nugget from that is that Wraith Rovers went further in the UEFA Cup than Manchester United that season, which I think is excellent. <laughs> Michael, the big question then, is it fair to say that Newcastle bottled it or was it just a question of Man United being that much more professional? Yeah, I mean, they really lost it in uh, the last couple of weeks of the campaign. In particular, there was a, a defeat against Blackburn uh, away, a midweek game at uh, Ewood Park. And the interesting thing with that was... Both goals, both Blackburn goals were scored by Graham Fenton, who's this guy who doesn't really appear in Premier League history before or after, but was very much a Geordie. And it's run away. This is Fenton. Oh, a bit of fortune there. Fenton wants more. And he scored. They looked as though they got away with it. But they hadn't. And he was assisted for both goals by Alan Shearer, two guys who grew up at Wolves End Boys Club. Graham Fenton has since been the manager of both North Shields and South Shields, so he's very much a Geordie. Um, and yeah, in the end, Newcastle kind of just ran out of steam. I mean, I, I would attribute it to the fact that really they they changed the system with the signing of Aspria and then David Batty, which changed things in midfield. And it wasn't necessarily the individuals, but it was really the fact that you know, Keegan didn't really have much direction or, or much uh, didn't communicate really how he wanted the players to change with those, uh, you know, quite significant changes in personnel. It meant Beardsley was sometimes now on the right, um, having played up front. That kind of changed the fact they weren't playing with wingers. They were kind of messing around in the central midfield zone as well. So, yeah, I think they just ran out of steam. And, and in the end, they, you know, it sounds an obvious thing to say, but they just didn't pick up enough points. They were a great side at their best. But I think when they really had to dig in and fight, they didn't have as much as Manchester United in that uh, in that respect. And just in terms of any other business, I think the, it was the season before that, that Jürgen Klinsmann had come, but this was really the start of the superstar foreign signing, Ginola and Asperity we mentioned. Yeah, Silenzi, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the one I was thinking of actually was Janino, you know, he came for the first of his three spells at Middlesbrough um, and it probably goes down as one of, if not the greatest player in their history, but it was around this time that that really started started emerging, wasn't it? Janino, Aspria, David Ginola, Forrest had Brian Roy, plenty of others. Ruud Hullet, you know, who'd go on to be Chelsea's manager the the next season. That that was when that really started to to kick in. And and the other thing that stands out is that is that David Boost injury for Coventry uh, at Old Trafford that that made Peter Schmeichel sick on the pitch and need counselling. Uh, I looked up 
David Boost, what he's doing now, yeah, because he had 10 operations in 12 days and 22 overall after this this injury. Uh, he's now head of Coventry's uh, charity group, Sky Blues in the community. So that's oh, a that's nice. fairly nice ending. What, what actually happened to him that day? His foot got implanted in the ground, didn't it? And then just snap on the lower part of his leg. He still has the scar, still walks with a limp. Uh, it was pretty graphic. Mm. He got MRSA in hospital as well, so he really did have the worst time possible with it. Blimey. Well, more of that sort of thing, not that sort of thing, but the other sort of thing in The Mixer, of course. Michael Cox is an excellent chronicle of the evolution of the uh, Premier League. Aaron Nelson, actually, on the subject of The Mixer, it says the final chapter in that book is about uh, Chelsea's 2016-17 season and 3-4-3. In the almost three seasons since, says Aaron, 3-4-3 hasn't become the new normal as was posited. What has then? Is it being reactive, the front five? And does it mean that we've come full circle to 2-3-5, Michael? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I've, I've written a few times about how a lot of these sides are essentially playing with, with a five-man attack these days. And they do that in different ways. Obviously, the Chelsea did it quite naturally with wing-backs overlapping either side of a front three. Liverpool essentially doing it with very aggressive full-backs who are their most creative players. And City doing it with, with the two number eights in midfield, pushing forward into positions with the wingers, you know, maintaining their positions on the flanks. So, yeah, the, the front five in various forms has definitely made a, made a bit of a comeback. Brilliant. Well, the mixer is available, as is Daniel's book, 250 Days, Daniel. Indeed, yes. All right. Do you have any uh, reading material you'd like to flog at this point, Matt? No. All right. <laughs> Somebody else's football book you'd recommend? Yeah, if you're of a Forest persuasion, uh, The History Boys, 30 Iconic Goals in the History of Nottingham Forest by David Marples is very good. But generally, I think probably my favourite of all time is actually Tony Adams' autobiography, Addicted. If you read the first few chapters of that, it's absolutely astonishing. It's You read it with your your, your mouth agape. It's uh, him talking through the sort of latter stages of his alcoholism. But the whole book is fantastic, well worth, well worth looking up. Brilliant. Well, uh, many thanks, guys, uh, for that entertaining romp through the 95-96 season and more. We'll be back on Tuesday morning with Alvaro Romeo, James Horncastle and Julian Ron with the latest news from Europe. And also a bit of a, a, a Euro retro feature as we journey to Athens in 94, which certainly sounds like fun. Be a part of that then. Why don't you listen up from Tuesday morning? And there'll be a fresh galazzo as well from Wednesday too so plenty coming up then from Muddy Knees Media in the week to come for now from all of us here it's goodbye you've been listening to the Totally Football Show a Muddy Knees Media production for sales and advertising please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football Network at The Totally Show on Twitter and make sure you check out our brand new website too thetotallyfootballshow.com I'm Andrew Slavin from the Totally Scottish Football Show and I'm here to tell you why you should be listening to our Scottish show. Number one, it's full of insightful knowledge on Scottish football like this. It looks to me as though they've spent all their time working on things in training. We go on the pitch and then you just forget it, which happens with players who aren't very good. Number two, it's got Georgie Hatch's son. Number three, we get to talk about the spaghetti hag. Look into it, you should. Anyway, you'll find us every Tuesday morning ready to inform you on the greatest league in world football. Just search for the Totally Scottish Football Show and we'll be there every Tuesday. Marini's Media.